Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley... Many of the settlers who headed west in the 1840s ended up in the treeless prairie, then known as the Nebraska Territory. They planted trees for shade protection and to slow crop erosion. Their success inspired Nebraska Territory Secretary and self-proclaimed tree enthusiast J. Sterling Morton to propose a tree-planting holiday. One million trees were planted in April 1872 for America's first Arbor Day. This year marks the 150th anniversary of the holiday. Massachusetts will observe the day on April 29th with environmental professionals leading mass tree plantings and educational programming for the community. And three local professionals in forestry, horticulture, and ecology join us to talk about trees' crucial role in the ecosystem. Later in the show, a family road trip after a COVID-19 forced separation prompts long-held revelations from a mother and her daughters. The three sisters we meet in this piece love each other fiercely and also are really, really working out how to be their own people as adults. There's that adult sibling dynamic and your siblings, whether or not they're blood siblings or people you've grown up with, they see you, all of you. They see the the you you were at two years old and they see the you you are at 47 years old. And that can be wonderful and beautiful. And it can also be quite complicated. The Huntington Theatre Company's production of Our Daughters Like Pillars features the latest work from award-winning local playwright Kirsten Greenwich. But first, joining me remotely, Grace Elton, CEO of the New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill, a nonprofit organization and 171-acre garden in Boylston, Massachusetts. Hi, Grace. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Also with me, Tom Brady, arborist and tree warden and conservation administrator for the city of Brookline, Massachusetts. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Hi, Callie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad to have you as well. And Lucy Hutira, scientist and professor in the Department of Earth and Environment at Boston University and head of the Hutira Research Lab, which researches the carbon dynamics in forest systems and urban areas by implementing principles from various scientific fields. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm going to start with you, Tom Brady, because some might say you are quarterbacking. Ha ha, had to do it. <laughs> All of the, the tree uh, preservation and conservation efforts in the city of Brookline. Um, talk about what your role is and how it is exactly what Arbor Day is about. Thank you. My role is an interesting combination of statute and science. Massachusetts general law, which was created in the late 1890s, protects all those trees within the public right of way. 
and all communities in the Commonwealth are required by statute to have a tree warden. And that tree warden has care, custody, and control of all the trees within the public right of way. In Brookline, I also serve as the town arborist. So I'm an arborist from my first day at college up through the current present. It's my vocation. It's what I love to do. So my goal in my, my everyday work, first preserve and then protect and ultimately perpetuate for future generations the urban forest in which we all live. So let's have a sense of exactly how many trees you're overseeing in Brookline. It's a great question. Interestingly, it's very, very dense here in the community of Brookline. The town of Brookline, since its inception, references trees in their founding documents. We have roughly 12,000 trees in our public rights of way. And if you look at the trees within our public spaces, which include playgrounds, cemeteries, schools, and natural and open spaces, if there's another 50,000 trees on top of that. So it's roughly 60,000 trees or so that we maintain uh, within the community. And who decides when there'll be more trees? You? Uh, it's very process oriented here in Brookline. And we have just finished the an urban forestry climate resiliency master plan that was a great community effort over the last couple of years. And that gives us a blueprint that is not just dictated by myself, but that was uh, developed by a terrific team of technical and scientific experts with tremendous input from the community. So we now have a blueprint for the next 20 to 30 years going forward. Okay. We'll leave it there for a minute while I move over to Grace Elton, CEO of Tower Hill, now the New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill. So originally what happened was a grassroots nonprofit initiative because you all were responding to or your group was responding to an infestation of Asian longhorn beetles in Worcester. So first talk about what the Asian longhorn beetle was doing and how bad was the infestation to really prompt a whole organization. Thanks, Callie. Yeah, the Asian longhorn beetle attacked Worcester, Massachusetts, and then spread to other parts of the region a little over 10 years ago. And as a response to this, many trees were cut down in our county. The city of Worcester alone lost 30,000 trees. So basically, its whole urban forest was decimated. And it has such a wide host um, that the beetle attacks. So many, many trees were affected. It wasn't just like one type of tree. So in response to this, if you can imagine that people were devastated, I would, I'm so connected to my landscape and my trees, not just being a horticultural professional, but, um, but also in my home landscape. And Tim Murray, who was the Lieutenant Governor of the state at the time, and Congressman Jim McGovern got together and they really were the catalyst to start the Worcester Tree Initiative. And um, they worked with a number of other elected officials, a lot of volunteers, and they helped to replant the 30,000 trees that were cut down and also countless acres as well that, that were removed. So it started by just giving people trees to plant in their backyards and also working with the city and with other municipalities to plant um, trees in parks and on the streets. And from the very beginning, it wasn't just about getting trees in the ground. It was about education. So every tree that was given out, they also did a little demonstration or handed out a pamphlet and really taught the citizen who took the tree, you know, to plant themselves, how to do it correctly, how to maintain that tree for the tree's life. Because just planting a bunch of trees isn't going to get you anywhere if those trees aren't going to grow up and provide shade, provide all the health benefits, provide the environmental benefits that grown trees will provide. Now, the Worcester Tree Initiative merged with the then Tower Hill Botanic Garden about five or six years ago, and now it has really morphed into the New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill outreach arm. 
So we still do a lot of tree planting in the city, but we also really focus on that maintenance of some of those trees that we planted 10, 12 years ago back with the Worcester Tree Initiative. So we're working with interns, with volunteers, and with paid staff as well to help the city plant new trees, but more importantly, water newly established trees and prune young trees. Because uh, pruning young trees at an early age, you can correct a lot of the structural problems um, that, that would become a big problem when they become a full-grown tree. So it's great because we're teaching job skills to young people who want to join the green industry, and we're also providing a great benefit to the city. It's a, it's a wonderful partnership with the city of Worcester especially, and we're really pleased to be able to improve the the urban forest. We are a botanical garden. As as you mentioned, we're in Boylston, which is just 10 miles outside of the city of Worcester. So we also have um, that 170 acres where people can come and see large trees and um, see established landscapes. And because we're a botanic garden, part of our mission is education. So not only do we teach on site, but we're also going off site and teaching in the community, continuing to teach people about planting trees and maintaining their landscapes well. Also, we go into schools and teach them about um, the benefits of trees as well. So curious, of the trees that were planted immediately after you cleaned up after the infestation, how, how many are still thriving, would you say? There are a good number still thriving. And actually, right now, the city is going through um, a complete inventory of the urban forest. So we'll know exactly how many survived in the next coming months. But, um, but I'd say, you know, I, I can drive through neighborhoods and definitely identify which ones were clear cut and then completely replanted um, 10 years ago. And most of them are still surviving. And I think it's because of that educational piece and because of the commitment to ongoing maintenance. So Arbor Day really gives um, your group an opportunity to bring to the forefront a number of the issues that you say are so important in the public education about trees. Absolutely. And, um, you know, Arbor Day is just the day where we can bring the most attention to to tree planting. We're doing it year round and we are actually doing a festival for the city of Worcester in cooperation with the city officials. And on May 1st, we'll be planting trees in University Park with food trucks and vendors, and we'll do educational workshops and provide resources at that time. But we want to make it like a tree party, make it make it a fun thing, not just, you know, you're going to school. I think people can get really excited about trees, uh, especially in their uh, when they're empowered to to understand how to take care of them appropriately in their front yards and on their on their city streets. Okay. Lucy Hutira, people wouldn't have any information to teach about if it weren't for the kind of research that you are doing and have been doing. So first, I'd like to start, have you go back 15 years when you started working on looking at some of these, as you say, nature-based solutions or claims about nature-based solutions. What did you think then? What did the research say? And how has it come forward? How has your research come forward since then? Today, we hear a lot about nature-based solutions, and that's either green infrastructure or blue infrastructure to try to add resilience to stormwater events or climate change in cities. But a lot of what, a lot of the thinking about what vegetation does in cities was either looking at highly managed street trees and inferring that that's what all urban trees were, or it was looking at really rural locations where trees were growing in the context of a forest. But when we think about trees growing in cities, they are really growing in a very different environment. 
And 15 years ago, I, uh, I was pretty skeptical about all the environmental claims that were going around what urban trees were going to do for us. Now, why were you skeptical before you go on? Because if you look across the city, it's just not that many trees, right? If you look across the city like Boston, if you look from the sky, it might be 25, 27% of the ground that's covered by trees. And most of the area is covered by pavement and buildings and factories and cars that are spewing greenhouse gas emissions. And some of the goals that were put forth said, you know, these urban trees would be able to mitigate all these uh, fossil fuel emissions and they'd solve all of our problems. And my, you know, skeptical scientist brain said, I just don't think there's enough trees to make a dent. And it's a little bit of a Band-Aid on this giant problem that we have, where planting trees can be maybe a little bit easier than hitting some of the core issues. That's mm. where I was 15 years ago. And so I, my group for the last decade plus has tackled this question to try to see what are trees and cities actually doing. And uh, I can eat my words now. <laughs> they do a lot more than I expected or than anybody who would have read your classic textbook would have expected. What we found looking at trees in Boston is that, that if we control for how big the tree is, the species of the tree, a tree growing in the city grows about four times as fast as its country cousin. And that's amazing to me. So one of those urban trees is actually doing a disproportionate amount of work in terms of tackling climate issues. And that's really because if we think about the environment that these urban trees are growing in, it makes sense. We water them or they can access sewage lines, which are full of water and nutrients. So they're getting fertilized. They tend to grow with more space. So they have ample light and they're growing in a CO2 rich environment. So all of that fossil fuel combustion, which is leading to global problems with climate change, locally, the trees can take advantage of that extra carbon dioxide and it stimulates their growth. And so it's a tough place to get established, but if the trees can get their root system in place, these trees grow incredibly quickly. And in some places, like in Boston, where much of my work has been based, the trees have ample water. They have water because our climate is conducive to it. It rains a lot. It rains pretty evenly across the year. And our old infrastructure leaks enough that there's just a lot of water available underground. And so these trees, they evaporate water from the ground into the air, cooling the city. And I would argue that's actually the, the biggest ecosystem service that these trees are providing is in the summer, they make the city much more livable than, uh, than it would be without them. And then what we'd expect trees to be able to do. And that's because they are just so productive and they're not limited by water here. Hmm. So on this 150th anniversary of Arbor Day, What's the one thing you want uh, your average person to take away about the importance of trees in the city? I think that we need to understand that in the city, in a place like Boston, most of the trees that we have are actually on private property. And that the average citizen has a big role to play to be able to maintain and improve the canopy cover in cities where 
we can think about what is the city doing, what is the state doing on municipal property or street trees that might be owned by the city. But that's a small fraction of the total canopy cover that we have. And this is one of those areas where if we think about, well, what can I do to solve climate change? What can I do to improve the livability and environmental quality in my city? Planting trees in your yard has a huge impact on your local climate. It creates habitat, it will bring birds into your neighborhood. And it's something that's very actionable for everybody. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Grace Elton, CEO of the New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill. Tom Brady, tree warden and conservation administrator for the city of Brookline, and Lucy Hutira, scientist and professor in the Department of Earth and Environment at Boston University. We're discussing Arbor Day, the impact of trees on the environment, and what we can do to preserve them. I want to follow up of what you've said, Lucy, with you, Tom, because I was thinking as she was mentioning this, the trees being on private property, I live in Cambridge. And the last couple of years, they've planted new trees in the little strips, you know, right next to the sidewalks in front of our houses. And they left instructions for us. You know, we have to, you know, water and do things. I have to say my neighbor's much better about it than I am. But it just dawned on me that uh, what Lucy is talking about in terms of active participation from citizens and residents like myself is really part of this. And you've said that in Brookline, there is a constituency and a community that's passionate about trees. So is that something you all are doing as well? It is. It's a critical component. One of the things that I like to keep in mind, uh, I remind myself and talk with folks about, is that when the canopy that we enjoy now on the streets was installed and planted it and, and was uh, put in place uh, decades ago, um, it was a very different environment. We had less infrastructure, we had less concrete, less asphalt, fewer cars, less density. So we need to work certainly very hard to hold on to, to those mature trees because they give us so many benefits. But when we plant these trees and we plant roughly 450 to 600 trees per year in our rights of way, we also leave instructions. It's a great point. It needs to be a cooperative effort from us on the, on the governmental side and from our residents. And we're very fortunate that we have a, a real passion here in town through groups and through neighborhood associations that we partner with every day to, to help us get those trees established. We like to say to folks and, and talk through the process to keep in mind that when you when you do plant a new tree, the first year, they, they the roots kind of sleep. They stay within the root ball. The second year, if you do everything right, uh, they start to creep a little bit and expand so they can get more nutrients. And the third year, if you continue on that track, they will leap. So it's a, it's a three-year process for the tree really to establish at a minimum. And then we just need to stay with it. So those partnerships are a critical component to make sure that the urban forest is here for the next generation to enjoy as well. So just as a follow-up to you, okay, so we've heard the expression tree huggers. There have always been a group of people who are really been into trees. But then there seems to me that there is now a a, a bigger expansion of interest in this in what I would just call your your average person that perhaps hadn't thought about it in any great sense. But as Lucy had pointed out, recognizing now the really climate implications has become more attuned to it and more enthusiastic. And I want to know if there are some examples of that that you could share in your town, Tom Brady. I think what we've done is we've taken a real step forward and we, we recognize those, what we call the functions and values that Lucy is referring to. I mean, for a long time, as Lucy said, 
there was a feeling that the trees were really providing these benefits in cooling, heating, just making the community more livable. And there are some ancillary benefits in terms of property values and, uh, and just an overall livability. But really, Lucy's work, it was interesting to, to hear her speak. Those of us in the tree community have really embraced her work because it's really brought a much clearer scientific connection between what the trees do and what her perception is in terms of stormwater, heating, and cooling, and other things. And so now you're seeing uh, organizations above us, such as EPA, recognizing the true value stormwater the trees perform stormwater, so that feeds into communities working to stay in compliance with regulations about stormwater. So from a tree point of view, that now allows me to partner with those groups and use trees as part of the solution rather than hard engineered solutions. Hmm. So that connectivity is really, will pay long-term dividends. And it's, it's frankly, it's gratifying to see after a few decades in the field uh, to see those connections really coming together. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Grace Elton of the New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill, Tom Brady of the City of Brookline's Department of Public Works, and Professor Lucy Hutira of the Department of Earth and Environment at Boston University. We're discussing all things Arbor Day on the 150th anniversary of Arbor Day and the importance of tree preservation. Well, I have the same question to you, Grace Elton, but let me frame it this way. I know that uh, the city council approved the Green Worcester Plan. That's an effort to make it Worcester successful and climate resilient at one of the best in, in uh, North America in the next 20 years. And I would imagine that trees are a central part of that. Can you speak to that plan, that approved plan, and answer the same question that I asked Tom in terms of rather regular folk are now coming around to recognizing the importance of what you're doing. So, yep, the plan was just approved and we were involved in a little bit of the creation of the plan through focus groups. Of course, I want to see trees emphasize even more than they are in the plan, but I'm glad that they're in there. <laughs> and I do think that there is an awareness of the importance of trees. And I think that the Asian longhorn beetle devastation of the urban tree canopy in Worcester really opened the eyes of this community. I'm not from this area. I moved here from Virginia. I'm originally from Florida. I've lived all up and down the East Coast. And I noticed when I first moved to this community, I think it was day four of, of my employment here, I went to an event and the elected officials were all talking about trees. And I'd never lived in a community like that before where there was such an awareness of the importance of the urban forest. And I was immediately thought, oh, well, this is a place I could, I could really get into. Um, so, so I think because of that devastation a decade ago, it really came to the forefront of people's minds about why trees are important. So I hopefully the, the Green Worcester Plan will also make it even more prevalent that it's very important to improve our urban forest. I still think there's education to be done and there's, you know, we're, we're never going to stop talking about how, how important trees are. Uh, but it's because of studies like all of Lucy's research and, and other studies that are, are coming out, I hope that more funding is given to plant more trees to improve the urban forest more. There's also a lot of research on the health and wellness benefits of trees 
and also just spending time outdoors, you know, with reducing weight, promoting fitness, uh, restoring emotional well-being. Anecdotally, we saw that throughout the pandemic. Many visitors came to our garden, to the New England Botanic Garden, because it was an outdoor space where they were able to rejuvenate. And they told us it was very essential to their mental health. And it was great for the people who were able to come to Boylston, 10 miles outside of the city. But many people live in these tree deserts in urban environments, and they live in environmental justice neighborhoods where there's a lot of concrete and not a lot of green. So one thing that um, that New England Botanic Garden is doing with our outreach programs is really focusing on those urban environmental justice neighborhoods. And if there isn't a tree well, we are installing giant planters and planting trees and planters. I know that some places there just aren't places to plant trees on city property. As Tom and Lucy were saying, that a lot of our urban forest is located in someone's private property. So we also encourage planting on um, in people's backyards and their front yards, and we provide trees for free. So hopefully our efforts are making people more aware of the, the importance of trees, not only for the wonderful climate benefits, but also for their their mental health and their um, their physical health as well. Well, now Worcester has gotten the Tree City USA distinction for 36 consecutive years from the Arbor Day Foundation. So specifically, why have they been able to get this recognition? Because you've got to be doing something bigger and better than a lot of other cities in the U.S., Absolutely. And the city is doing a lot of really good things and they're doing things right. So Arbor Day, the Tree City USA certification, uh, we play a part in, in helping the city through our tree planting and tree maintenance efforts. Also, part of that certification is that a certain percentage of, of the city budget is dedicated towards tree planting. And the um, the city of Worcester has dedicated funds to tree planting. I'd always love to see more trees planted, of course. I'm sure Tom would as well and Lucy. But a dedication towards funding and a dedication towards long-term maintenance of these trees is part of that certification. Lucy, part of your work also is to take a look, a very detailed look at the city of Boston's climate action plans trying to see if they're on track to meet goals and for the state as well. And what we've been hearing a lot of in the last couple of years are about, Grace referred to it as sort of tree deserts, which become heat deserts, because as we know, we've seen some climate changes that the heat is crazy now in the city because there aren't enough trees. So where are you in terms of what can be done to sort of mitigate the heat increase in these tree desert areas? And also, how does that play into where Boston's goals to improve and to probably block detrimental climate change effects? It's a, it's a hard problem. And honestly, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all solution. In some parts of the city, there is no easy space to plant trees and there's acute need for cooling. In some of the harder-hit neighborhoods, there's a huge amount of asphalt a lack of air conditioning in the homes and the people that are living there are just feeling the burden of heat inside their home on the street and um, we need solutions now to those problems and like you said trees I think are part of the solution but in order for a tree to grow large enough where it will start to really give those shading benefits and the cooling benefits that takes time so I think trees are an important part of the solution but in some neighborhoods other kinds of changes can happen faster and have more immediate impacts things like changing the color of roofs 
and making them more reflective and white rather than black to absorb and trap all that heat is something that can be done very rapidly to try to tackle that. Now, painting all of our roofs white won't solve the whole problem, but in some neighborhoods, it's a really important place to start, especially if the if the housing density and the infrastructure is such that it's just not easy to plant trees. And we also need to think a lot about what are we planting and are we planting it in the right place where it will survive? You know, it's often we just talk about tree planting writ large, but there's a lot of thought that has to go into planting the right tree in the right place. A tree that will have enough space to grow in the space that you've planted it, where it won't grow too large to be interfering with other infrastructure, whether it be power lines or buildings or below ground infrastructure, but also giving it enough space where it won't start damaging sidewalks and other infrastructure challenges that can happen. We also need to think about the species of trees that we're planting, where as much as I love our native oaks, in many parts of the cities, that may not be the right tree to plant. It roots very deeply, it grows very large, and if it falls, the infrastructure damage can, can be profound. So there's a lot of thought that has to go into the right plants in the right locations. I also think we need to think about you know, we have things like heating oil subsidies and heating subsidies to make sure that people stay warm enough in the winter. In some parts of the city, we really need to start thinking about cooling subsidies too. And that doesn't have to necessarily be something like air conditioning. It can be something like installing blinds in people's homes or offering other educational opportunities to try to meet the climate challenges that are before us. Trees are absolutely part of the solution, but we're not going to be able to solve the whole problem with trees alone. Hmm. All right. It falls to you, Arborist Tom Brady, for the last word about the 150th anniversary of Arbor Day and why that is meaningful to you. I think the 150th anniversary is remarkable in that 150 years later, as you just heard from Lucy, we are still learning about trees. We are learning the benefits that they provide to us. We're quantifying those. Uh, and I think it's remarkable that in New England, trees are part of our fabric. They're part of our communities and, and, and uh, we've, we've grown up with them. It's something I think is critical that as we learn more about it, we're learning not to just take it for granted and we're learning to plan for the future in terms of how we can better care for them and now we can better uh, ensure that my kid, my grandkids get the same benefits and enjoyment out of this urban forest that we all live in every day, 50, 60, 70, 80 years from now. Well, that's a great place to end. I thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Grace Elton is the CEO of the New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill, a nonprofit organization in a 171-acre garden in Boylston, Massachusetts. Tom Brady is an arborist and the tree warden and conservation administrator for the city of Brookline, Massachusetts. Lucy Hutera is a scientist and professor in the Department of Earth and Environment at Boston University. Her lab, the Hutera Research Lab, researches the carbon dynamics in forest systems and urban areas. Coming up, 
The new Huntington Theatre Company play, Our Daughters Like Pillars, has all the signature touches of local playwright Kirsten Greenwich. It's set in New England. It's a story about a family where issues of race and gender are a part of the main character's reality, and humor is a part of the storytelling. For Our Daughters Like Pillars, Greenwich also adds a twist, setting the compelling drama against the backdrop of the evolving COVID-19 crisis. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.